This is Press Publish, a weekly conversation about journalism, technology, and the media business. I'm Josh Penton, director of the Neiman Journalism Lab at Harvard, and this is episode 13. My guest today is Adam Ragusea, the host of The Pub, a podcast about the state of public media, mostly public radio. I first heard Adam's voice about seven years ago when he was a reporter for WBUR, the local NPR station here in Boston. He's since moved into teaching journalism, and by hosting The Pub, he's established himself as one of the more interesting and ornery thinkers about the field's future. We talked about a range of topics, how the shift of podcasting is putting local news at risk, why he thinks public radio is stuck producing content that doesn't work well online, and what he'd do if he were running an NPR or an NPR member station. Here's our conversation. So the the pub is a podcast about public media and about podcasting and about the the changes going on there. How did how did the idea for the pub come in, into being? Should we take a second and just acknowledge the fact that you're talking to a podcaster who podcasts about media on a podcast about media? Uh, I think we could acknowledge that, but there's a chance we might implode. Okay, <laughs> a singularity, right? It's going to suck the whole universe in, right? Yeah, okay. How or at least our self involvement, you know. Yeah, exactly. That's right. Um, how did the pub get started? The uh, pub got started because I – well, I suppose it got started ultimately because I I, I took a job. I, I, I left daily uh, public radio journalism in which I had worked for eight or nine years and took a job in academia and where I, I now teach at Mercer University in Macon, Georgia and – Although it's, I mean, it's, it's a journalist in residence position, so I, I still report and do a lot of my own work um, in addition to teaching. But it's fundamentally an academic position, and I'm supported by a university. And I kind of, I was thinking that I wanted to use that transition to start doing more writing about public media, um, and to to sort of try to, I don't know, to try to make some conversations happen that I I just kind of didn't feel like were happening or at least weren't widespread enough within uh, public media and public radio in particular. So I wanted, to, I wanted to sort of transition into being kind of a commentator on the field, and I wrote some written pieces for Current, which is our, the trade publication for public broadcasting. Um, I wrote these three sort of long reported commentaries that all um, did very well for them in terms of hits and they were very happy with, and so they approached me about doing some kind of regular thing, and we had a, a meeting at a a bar in D.C., and they said uh, – I said, okay, sure. What do you want me to do? And they said, well, how about a podcast? And I said, okay, and here we are. It's – we can get away from the meta-ness of this in a minute, in a minute but just to touch on it a little bit <laughs> no, more. No, we can't. No, we can't. It's going <laughs> to suck in the whole galaxy. So the – one of the challenges of being a media outlet that writes about other media outlets is that if anything you're, – you're, if you're saying other people aren't being innovative enough, then you sort of have to back up your own – game on that point. I know we, I, I feel that at, at Neiman Lab, but you know, you're, you're producing a, a podcast um, that is only digitally distributed, right? There's, there's no, there's no, it's not uh, terrestrially broadcast in any way, right? It's available on PRX if any oh. radio station would like to pick it up. Okay, great. <laughs> um, but you know, in a, you're operating in a context in public media where the idea of digital versus uh, terrestrial versus traditional and radio is is sort of a fraught space. Yeah. Um, and when listening, you know, I've listened to quite a few episodes of, of your show, and it's it has it has a compared to a lot of other podcasts, it has a very public radio feel to it, which I guess is sort of fitting. Just the the production, the 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 intros, the the, the segues from segments, it, it just feels like. Uh, a polished public radio production. I'm just wondering how you think about 
you know, the act of creating the pub as a and putting it out with every episode as, I don't know, a comment or a how do you think that the form influences the way it gets received? It's very interesting that you pick up on that because there is a lot of intention there. I mean, I, I am. God, this makes me sound so pedantic. Um, I am trying to kind of model some practices that I think would be good for the whole for the whole industry. Um, or at least explore them. Yeah, my model is too grandiose. I'm trying to explore some practices that I think might be good for the whole industry in the process of doing a podcast that is about the industry, right? So for one thing, it's very personality-oriented. You know, I, I could have done a podcast for for The Current where I would just, you know, do straight interviews with pe- important people in public media and people in the industry would have you know, listened to it and it would have been fine. But I, I made the decision to make it a really personality-driven show, my personality, and to really be a commentator. And every episode begins with uh, an extensive reported commentary from me that is generally pretty sound rich and, and, um, and I'm – I'm inhabiting a character like I'm really trying to have a personal relationship with the audience because, you know, what the success of certain podcasts has showed us thus far is that personality is is everything. I mean, personality is number one. If people don't have a personal connection to the 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 show and its host or hosts, um, they're just not going to respond to it. It can't. It can't be blank. So it's. I, I'm trying to be. It's. I'm trying to make it very personality driven. Um, I'm trying to make it much less constrained in terms of its uh, form. You know, I, my 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 writing is really very expansive and kind of rambly, um, but deliberately so. I mean, I think we write way too tight in standard public radio style. And that's a style that we've developed for a lot of very good and practical reasons for a lot of years, but I just don't think it works on the internet. And, and I'm, I'm, you know, there's data to back me up on that. You know, NPR has tried, I mean, all kinds of public radio organizations tried for years to push out podcasts that were basically repackages of their standard three to four minute action tracks, really, really tightly written radio pieces. And they've all flopped like that just does not work in the on-demand space. People want a format that really stretches out. People want someone to, to, you know, spin a yarn. Um, I know that's what I want as a listener. And so, you know, the, the narrative structure of my commentaries and my, sometimes even my intros to interviews is very, Inspired by the the Shaggy Dog story, <laughs> uh, Shaggy Dog story is this you know narrative structure where you um, it's it's a it's a story that like each sort of each step in the narrative makes sense right where you're moving from sort of you know plot point to plot point to plot point and it all makes sense but then it it takes you someplace completely illogical from where you began there's not this kind of overarching you know totally logical arc to it or at least not an immediately apparent one. And then it often ends with some kind of outrageous pun or anti-climax, and that's not how I generally do it. But I, you, know, you sometimes see it, uh, like a, a place where you see a shaggy dog kind of narrative is in Garrison Keillor's um, uh, a News from Lake Wobegon uh, monologues, or the place that where I'm directly inspired by it is Dan Savage's podcast, The Savage Lovecast, where he always starts with some kind of, um, you know, I think he'd probably call it a rant about something in 
sexual politics or politics that he wants to talk about. And what I love about those rants is that he often starts with something that is not the thing that he's going to be talking about. Um, he'll, you know, the, the rant will actually be about gay marriage, but he'll start talking about a television show. And it's an, a, it takes a long, long time to get from A to B. And that journey is to me really satisfying, and I think it's something that really works for sort of long-form listening, and long-form listening seems to really work on the internet. So yeah, I'm trying to sort of model that for people. And then lastly, this is also a very rambling answer to your question, um, lastly, I'm trying to kind of experiment with um, really, really cheap production practices. I think that I think that pub- people were trained in the, in the traditional public radio system th- the way that I was um, I think we worry way too much about certain production practices and spend too much money on them, and then we actually worry not enough about other things, and I'll, I'll be specific. So, for instance, right now, um, I'm talking to you not in a studio but in my office at Mercer with my academic regalia tented around my head for sound <laughs> diffusion. <laughs> um, and, you know, it looks ridiculous. I, I call it my broadcast burka because I'm just sort of tented in black. Um, it's not the most comfortable thing, but it cost me no money, you know, and I don't have to. And it also it, co- it sort of saves me an opportunity cost because to, to, do, to do podcasting, to do my show, to do your show, um, doing it this way, I don't have to walk over to the Georgia Public Broadcasting Studio that I'm, I have full – you know, they're very kind to let me use that studio and I use it a lot. Um, when I have to, but mostly I stay here because I can be in my office working, doing all of my other things, and my interview subject calls me back, and I don't have to like, you know, go over to the studio or set a precise time. I can just pull the burka around my head and then do the thing. So that's one thing. Um, you know, I think we focus way too much in, in public radio on getting people in studios where we talk to them over ISDN lines or T1s, and that's incredibly expensive. And such a waste of time with all of the the amazing technology that is you know continuing to improve. Um, there's a there's a new app called Ringer that I use a lot that I really like. Um, that I, I think once they sort of get past their beta phase is going to be really really important to the industry. Hmm. Where you're you're talking over a, a voice over IP connection um, like Skype. Um, and that connection might sound crappy like, like Skype often does, but that's not the audio you actually use because the app is simultaneously recording the sound locally on your phone. Hmm. And then at the end of the call, it automatically uploads that sound to a, their, you know, their company server. It merges the two recordings. You get an email in your box that's got you know, your interview, and it's phenomenal. Oh, wow. And, and, you know, and look, it's still, it's still not great for radio – for the standards of radio people – mostly just because of the limits of an uh, of an iPhone mic or an Android mic, uh, Android device mic. Well, Android devices are a whole kettle of fish because you don't even know what device you're dealing with there, right. and it can be very unpredictable. You know, it's just, those mics still aren't great, but they're fine. They're freaking fine. Nobody cares. Everyone listening would much rather you spend your time and your money and your effort on editorial stuff. I can't tell you the number of times working at, like, WBUR in Boston, where you are, Josh, um, uh, you know, I'd spend a whole day desperately trying to find a, a radio studio for a guest, you know, just calling and calling and calling and calling and calling and shucking and jiving and trying to make the scheduling work. Um, and then that's, that's, that's my time I've spent on that. And then there's the, you know, 150 or 200 bucks I spend um, of the station's money renting the studio. And it's, to me, just completely insane. It's also insane how we make our guests go through all kind of 
you know, rigmarole to be on our shows, you know, like to make someone drive to a studio and then mm-hmm. wait there for a long time and get in. It's a whole big thing. I think you get better guests when you make it easy for them to be on your show. And people, the listeners just don't care. They, they just don't care about that crap. They care about getting the right guests talking about the right thing at the right time. You know, it's it's so interesting. You know, we, we, uh, we've written a lot over the years of uh, Clay Christensen's disruption theory and what you described is basically a, a perfect case study of that, where an industry um, gets so obsessed with their perception of quality that they end up overshooting the actual needs Precisely. of the of the listener or the customer, and that opens up a space for people to come in with cheap, you know, low quality in, in, in scare quotes at least uh, <laughs> quality by the by some some judgment to come in. It's, it's sort of what blogging did to, to newspapers and online publishing did to newspapers. You know what the cheap steel mill producers did to the giant and integrated steel companies in, in Pennsylvania, where you're from. Um, it, it, it is so interesting. One of the most frustrating things for me when I have conversations with, um, you know, new, I'm from, come from newspapers, newspaper people who say, well, it's all still journalism, right? It's sort of the idea that, well, there's this stuff online. I don't see why we're doing all this data journalism and doing, you know, visualizations and worrying about social media. It's all still journalism. The idea that there is one sort of platonic form and yeah, it just happens absurd. to be the form that they were, you know, trained in and, and, and grew up doing. Uh, so I can imagine that, you know, having these conversations at, with people in, say, a public radio station where you say, you know, the mic quality doesn't matter all that much. Um, I can imagine that those can be very difficult conversations to have. I will say, though, I think that the industry is getting kind of hip. And I, when I listen to All Things Considered or Morning Edition, I will hear sometimes an interview that I can tell the interview subject is being recorded on an iPhone. Um, that that happens. It's you know people are getting hip to it. In part, that's yeah. because um, you know the uh, the connections that we generally use studio to studio connections, ISDN connections. The phone companies are trying to gradually get out of the ISDN business um, because it's not it's they're just losing money on it. And so I think everyone knows that 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 model is dying. Um, and you know eventually. We're not even going to have to screw around with things like, you know, Ringer. There's voice over IP is going to sound great and be reliable one day, you know. And when that happens, you know, it'll just be a, a beautiful world, you know. But uh, we're still sort of dealing with some interim technologies here. Now, I will say that I think, you know, just like, just like in newspapers where, you know, people get and – I, and I work um, very closely with a, with a newspaper – now at the Center for Collaborative Journalism, a very good paper, um, and I'm very steeped in that culture now. And, and frankly, most of my my reporting output um, these days, other than the pub, is for 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 quote, text publications. You know, um, uh, and uh, so I, I have a sense of this now more more so than most public radio people. And um, you know, and print people really do obsess over things that the audience does not care about. The audience does not care about whether or not you used a freaking Oxford comma. Um, um, you know, and but there are things that the audience cares about that that print people sort of neglect and 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 forget about. Um, I think you know a good example of that is uh, discord between headline and piece. You know, it's really you know we just we generally tend to think of like a, a good headline is a headline that gets people to read the thing and click on it, and we'll hold our nose and write a headline that might not really be reflective of the content of the piece, right? Um, or might not even be super accurate, you know, um, and we'll just write it, you know. 
And I, I, you know, I hear from people over and over and over again, and it's certainly res- resonant with my experience, that people are really resentful when they click on a headline and what they get is not at all what they were promised. And that's really, really bad. But that's just not something that I hear any print people ever talking about. And headlines are treated as such a freaking afterthought. It's so stupid how, you know, I can – and I've, I've – you know, I'll, I'll – yeah, okay, I'll, I'll go ahead and I'll, I'll, uh, I'll name a specific publication um, – Slate, uh, which I've I've worked with many times, and I I got I love them. I love people there. I've had wonderful experiences there. But they do operate on this model where, like, you know, I might work, you know, uh, for you know weeks on a on a piece with an editor, and it'll be really really refined, and then they'll post it, and then some, you know, I imagine very kind of lowly. Um, you know, very junior um, assistant editor will write or rewrite a headline that is, you know, the headline is almost, is more, it's more important. I mean, the headline and the share lines are probably more important than the piece, mm-hmm. right? And there's like someone who has no, doesn't know anything about the story, you know, um, and, and doesn't have a lot of experience is going to do the thing that is actually the most important thing, the most front facing thing. And I've, you know, I had an experience once where like a, a piece that I'd written for Slate got a headline on it that was just wrong. It was just inaccurate. And, and it just, it created all kinds of problems. And I just, I see that happening over and over again. So that's an example where like, yeah, you've got an industry not paying attention to the thing that people actually care about. Now, likewise in, in radio, I think there's lots of things that we, you know, people care about that we don't care about, but getting back to your original question, which is what am I doing with this show about public radio where I'm trying to model things or demonstrate or, or experiment with things that I think public radio should be doing. One of them is paying a lot more attention to a, a, a production practices around loudness. That is how, how loud, how, per, uh, how perceptually loud different elements are relative to each other hmm. and how loud the actual show is relative to other shows out there in the universe that people might be listening to in a playlist with yours and other music or movies, other things they might be listening to. I've written a lot about this and I, I'm going to be at the SPJ conference in uh, – Orlando uh, in September giving a talk about this. Uh, loudness is, is huge. You know, how many times have you been listening to radio or a podcast um, in a car or on a train in a noisy environment, which is where people listen to this stuff? They never listen in an anechoic chamber with headphones on the way we like to imagine they're listening. You know, they're listening in these suboptimal environments. And how many times, you know, does a, a clip come on and it just – it's too low in the mix and you just – it just – it just goes on. It sinks under the noise floor of that car or that train, and it's gone forever. And whoever spent their day getting that clip might as well have just called in sick. You know, hmm. um, it happens all the time. Or where you, where something will come on that's way too loud relative to the thing that you were just listening to, and it's uncomfortable, and you're you know fiddling with the dial. Um, this is something that we need to be paying way more attention to. And you know, fortunately, there's been some technology technological breakthroughs with regard to loudness in in recent years, um, particularly the emergence of a of a loudness standard. Um, hmm. I'm saying loudness because loudness is actually distinct from from volume or level or electrical level is what a, a, a sound engineer might call it. Um, you know, human hearing sensitivity is not even across the frequency spectrum. Um, mm. And if you, anyone at home right now wants to Google Fletcher Munson curve, <laughs> um, you can see a chart um, that shows you how incredibly uneven it is and how we're much 
you know, sounds in certain frequency ranges will sound much louder to humans than in other frequency ranges. Hmm. And so if you're just looking at like – and I see, I see this a lot with people who are doing – you know, with the explosion of podcasting. You've got lots of amateurs making radio and I think that's wonderful. But like loud the, – the levels all over the place and I think part of the reason why is that you know, people are editing their shows in – you know something like Audacity or Adobe Audition, and they're they're balancing things by looking at the waveform, mm. how it looks on the screen. I need to get these two waveforms to be the same height, right? And that's completely that's going to screw you up because what that waveform is showing you is the actual acoustical energy of those signals, which is not what humans actually hear. Hmm. Um, so there's this standard now called loudness units, which is it's basically decibels, the you know the old scientific standard graded on a curve graded on the Fletcher Munson curve. It's adjusted to reflect um, human hearing sensitivity. So you can and should download a loudness meter for your uh, digital audio editing program and use that to help you judge things. But also just close your eyes and and listen and listen really hard. Um, And one thing that I do when I'm mixing, I really recommend for, you know, anyone, but especially, you know, podcasters, people who are sort of novices at this is um, go in your next time you're in a car, um, just you know, open up your iPhone and record a file of the car noise and get yourself like, you know, five minutes of like pretty, you know, of constant car noise, you know, driving on the highway or something like that. And then when you're mixing your thing, take that car noise and throw it into a track because that's the way that people are actually going to be hearing it and, ha- and actually mm-hmm. listen to it with loud car noise layered on top of it. And you will hear things you know, things that were totally clear as a bell for you a second ago, individual words will just completely drop out of the texture and you'll know how you need to go in and adjust things. So that's an example of where I'm spending a lot of time, you know, as my schedule allows with my show, trying to make the loudness, the levels like freaking perfect. Hmm. Um, again, just trying to kind of show other folks what I think we should all be doing. It's interesting, you know, uh, Press Publish, this podcast started in 2013 and went through 10 episodes, then hibernated for a while. So I've been back to editing podcasts, uh, you know, the last month or so after a, a, quite a break. And Welcome one, back. We're glad to have you. you. Thank you. One thing that has really struck me, it struck me a few years ago and, and stru- struck me today, is how poor the, the tools are for podcast you know, manufacturing, let's, let's, let's say something bigger than editing. It seems like there would be an opening for someone to create the one app that can, that can be the sort of soup to nuts. You know, there, we're still using tools in a lot of cases that were built for, for things other than spoken word. There was, you know, you know, I, this podcast is edited in an old version of GarageBand. Yeah, I'm not yeah. gonna, you know, it seems like the tools should be, should be better that, that the thing like recording two sides of an interview, I mean, I hadn't heard of this app that you mentioned, but it, it seems like the, the, the solution should be so much, so much better than they are. Yeah. And there's, there's a lot of companies out there developing things. I mean, I think you're going to see a lot of things coming out. And, and I, I should say that I think the, the, you know, the very best audio editor for <clears throat> radio production is an app call, uh, called Hindenburg, um, which people should absolutely check out. And by the way, the pro version of Hindenburg has this function which where you, when you take your clips and you throw them into the editor, it will automatically balance them on the loudness scale for you, hmm. um, which is like amazing. Um, but yeah, I mean, it's like wh- where's the app that does the editing, that does you know the the recording, both sides syncing, um, all of that stuff, all in the same space, and, and even does the publishing, you know, for you, all in the same place. Um, 
that that should exist. And I think that there's, you know, I think that Ringer is probably that's that's kind of their long game. That's what they're looking at. Um, there's another company that I'm trying to find on my computer right now that's starting a thing that sounds very promising. Uh, ah, I cannot find it. Um, but you know, there, there, there's a bunch of like startups that are working and I think it's going to get better, but you know, um, to me, that's not even really the, the production, the producer side problem with podcasting. I mean, it's the tools, whatever they'll, they'll be there eventually. The, the problem is the lack of a good platform, you know, hmm. and I've talked about this on my show. Um, you know, uh, and, and, uh, liking on her name, but a, a, a young woman that I interviewed recently who should really get the credit for this is, you know, asking, um, you know, where's, where's the YouTube for podcasting? Right. Um, because ultimately iTunes is really, you know, something like 80% of podcast listeners find what they're getting through iTunes or through the iOS podcast app, which is basically iTunes. Yeah. And that people forget that's not a platform. That's just a directory. You know, the, the files are not hosted there and the, and the platform is not monetized the way that YouTube is. You know, if you're if you're someone who makes great videos at home that lots of people want to watch, you can upload them to YouTube. You can get monetized on YouTube. YouTube will sell ads against your content. You don't have to do anything. You just make good stuff, and they will share the money with you. And that's we need that for podcasting desperately. It's crazy for for podcasters to be out there selling ads and. You know, and and having to—it's just you know. Yeah, I mean, I, I would. I mean, I I totally get that point. I would I would say though, like, if you if you if we were in talking about say you know textual online media uh, eight years ago or ten years ago, you might have had the same sort of of complaints. You know, we need we need someone to come in and, and figure out this monetization strategy. But the end result is that is that basically Google and Facebook took over all advertising, and you know every every publisher that previously sort of controlled the entire process from, you know, from the creation of the content to the distribution of content to the selling of the ads to the monetization to subscriptions. You know, the fact that they got rid of a lot of that responsibility has, you know, maybe been a boon for simplicity and has certainly helped some people. Um, But on the other hand, it's also taken a lot of money that out of the industry and moved it to, you know, Silicon Valley. Yeah. And and I think that that's, I think that that's a very legitimate concern. I think that, you know, YouTube is a bit of a better model um, because, well, first of all, part of the reason that, you know, I mean, part of the reason that online advertising as it exists for text products um, sucks so much is there's just so little money to go around, you know? And, you know, I think with YouTube, with, with, with broad, you know, Linear media, whether it's audio or video, is much more conducive to, to higher CPM rates, and 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 there's just there's just more money to go around. I think YouTube is also, and YouTube, let's remember, is part of Google, um, has been very forward thinking with their um, with their share rate. I mean, they share what is I think it's you know like ha- it's like roughly half of the revenue goes to the producer, um, and you know may I, I maybe the rest of the Maybe the rest of their industry will get wise to that. I mean, because if we're not if we're not funding the producers, there just, just will be no content. Um, but I, I don't know. Maybe that's not, maybe that's not true with text content because it's so damn cheap. It's it, I mean, as cheap as it is to make a podcast. It's so you know, it's nothing to type something. And uh, and maybe there will continue to be you know click worthy content um, 
even if people are getting paid nothing. So I, I, I don't know. I mean, my, my, I have my own deep misgivings about uh, the primacy of, of corporate platforms. And in fact, I've written about this for you, Josh, at Neiman Lab <laughs> right. in the past. Um, you know, I, I think it's a really, really big problem. I, um, you know, and getting back to, to what I do on, on my show, I, I think that, you know, public media is in a place where it really needs to have some much deeper conversations with itself about what is its function in the on-demand era and if it has a function in the on-demand era. Um, and one way I think that public media could have a function and have meaning for itself is to try to create uh, platforms that free the internet from these corporate platforms that are fundamentally mediating all of our content, you know, um, uh, if there is no if, – if there's no YouTube for podcasting and iTunes doesn't for whatever freaking reason doesn't seem to want to be the YouTube of podcasting, I would love to see an entity like PRX, a public – a forward-thinking public media entity try to create the YouTube of podcasting. Now, that's a, an unbelievable task. I, I have no idea if it's possible. But I would love – I think that that's something that public media could do so that like, yeah, you still have one or two platforms controlling everything and controlling a lot of the revenue. But if, if it could be a benevolent nonprofit entity with a, a public mandate to not be evil and it's not just a slogan that you can throw away when it becomes inconvenient um, – that's that's the world I would ideally want to live in. Yeah. So you were you worked as you said at WBUR here in Boston, where I, I heard your voice on on the airwaves uh, most days. Um, you were in that world, and you know all the glories and the frustrations of of being a day to day reporter at or at any news organization. Um, you've now stepped away, and as you said, you've taken uh, you know, a real interest in observing that world uh, very closely and, and commenting on it. You know what? I'm curious what has changed about your perception of about what public media or public radio uh, needs or where it's deficient or where it's ahead of the game. How have your perceptions changed since you've stepped away from you know, being in it day to day as a, as a cog in the machine? Well, I'll tell you that the, the number one thing that has changed has been my own, my own perceptions of, of the product and, and what I like and what I want, you know, like I, I used to listen to, you know, I used to listen to the, the core public media public radio programs, you know, uh, uh, Morning Edition, All Things Considered, and the other programs that are sort of done in that style, you know, um, like the local shows that, that that get done in WBUR that are basically done in the same style. Um, I, I used to listen to those a lot because it was my job, and I just don't listen anymore. I don't like them, <laughs> you know? Like, I mean, I, there's, there's a piece every now and then that I, I think will be – I'll hear something and it will be wonderful um, – you know, but it's almost never – it's almost never like the thing that I think um, the people making that stuff think is really good, you know? Like it's almost never like the really highly produced, tightly written, um, you know, enterprising uh, morning edition feature. Like I just – it's that, that – that form is so claustrophobic and so stiff I just can't take it anymore. You know, like the last time I feel like I heard something on one of those shows that absolutely stuck with me and that I was completely in love with was it was, it was a, a freaking phoner. It was a phone interview that Melissa Block did on All Things Considered with the guy who was the chef 
at I think it was the, the like the state pri- state prison in Texas where the Texas death row is, and they were talking to him because he was retiring and he had for years been the guy who uh, who cooked inmates their last meal, and he was just talking about what that's like because you know the inmates would often request things like. You know, they want Kentucky Fried Chicken, but they're, the, the regulations of the prison are such that they're not allowed to buy any kind of outside food. It has – everything they serve the prisoners has to be made in the kitchen. So he would work to try to, to replicate that, you know, weird over-peppered pressure cooker, you know, <laughs> uh, The 11 herbs chicken. and spices, yeah. Yeah, exactly. The 11 herbs and spices, exactly. You know, and th- it was it – was, I'm sure that no one at NPR – probably thought that that they probably thought that was like a throwaway thing that they were getting in the show because it was just it was just a phone interview with a guy you know that and that to me was the most thrilling thing i'd heard on the radio all that year and it's obviously still stuck with me you know so i i I just i just don't like the stuff that much anymore i think it's so stiff i can't i just it's it's i you know and i and i it's funny because like i i've been um I've been uh, I've been doing some, a little bit of radio again lately because uh, I, I still have an association with uh, Georgia Public Broadcasting because uh, I live in Georgia and I used to work for them and um, I've been subbing a little bit for uh, Celeste Headley who's a you know she was she was a correspondent on Day to Day she was the original co-host of the Takeaway on WNYC like a really wonderful veteran host who has started a, a new show called On Second Thought um, at GPB that you know my guess will. It's a local show now. It will probably be syndicated pretty soon. And, and, and uh, you know, they've sort of brought me in as the regular uh, fill-in host for Celeste. And, and I, you know, and I just – I'm having a lot of trouble finding the sweet spot between being the, the, the version of myself that I feel like podcasting has allowed me to be and that is closer to, to what I want to hear in other people and, you know, and also sort of – you know, to, uh, and, 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 and inhabiting this kind of standard public radio style and not, you know, which is, which is important because I can't, you know, when you're a sub host, it's really important for you to not totally change the character of the show. You know, you want to, you want to have your own personality, but at the same time, you want it to still sound like on second thought. You don't want people to be thinking, who is this guy? When does Celeste come back? You know, you want people to be thinking, oh, wow, this is the same show. It's just a different voice today, you know, and I'm having a lot of trouble sort of reconciling those things. Um, I'm having a lot of trouble inhabiting the role of, of, of conventionally impartial journalist, which I do not, I'm someone I've argued vociferously against the, 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 the usefulness and the appropriateness of that model. And I've written a lot about that, um, uh, especially with, with regard to public media in particular. Um, and I have to sort of ape it when I go on that show and it just sort of feels insincere to me. And I'm sure I'll find a way that'll, that'll work, but it's tough. So yeah, I just, you know, I, I just, I don't like the mainstream public radio product anymore. It, hmm. I, and, and I don't know to what extent that is just my own particular, um, sensibilities and I don't want to universalize my experience, you know, but there is a, um, there is a line of thinking in public radio right now. Um, and I just had a big conversation with Adam Davidson on my show about this, uh, planet money co-founder Adam Davidson about this, that was, has been extremely controversial in my world and has gotten me a lot of hate. Um, uh, you know, where Adam is basically arguing that the success of sort of personality driven long form narrative, shows in the on-demand space is an indicator that that's actually what the listeners have wanted all along. 
you know, mm-hmm. and that the fact that, you know, that the standard public radio format has been so successful is more just a factor of the fact that, you know, public radio has for a long time now really not had meaningful competition in terms of terrestrial radio with the exception of a few cities like D.C. that still have strong commercial news radio stations. There's really no other – there's no one else on the dial that is punching in public media's weight class and – so I, I I don't know. I mean, and to me that this is this is the big question. Is it just that people like me have this peculiar taste and we're finally able to get it through through the internet, through on demand programming, or is it that this is the thing that radio listeners have wanted all along? I don't yeah, know. Yeah, and I, I mean from from my perspective as someone who who um comes from journalism and cares a lot about journalism, you know, I I've sort of come to peace with the fact that uh you know the the technological methods and the distribution channels of of the 20th century, and this would be true for broadcast radio, broadcast television, print newspapers. They all aligned in sort of accidental ways towards producing a kind of journalistic product, a news product that maybe was a step away from what the market would have demanded, but nonetheless, that step was in the direction of some sort of civic good. Right. Yeah. I mean, the reason why. Why you know uh, morning edition uh, you know or the WBR edition of, of morning edition will, will be as it is is because it is a time bound context. It's being produced to be aired at you know eight thirty three in in the morning. It's that means that it's more likely to be news oriented around something that happened in the last twenty four hours or to to be of it's aimed at a broad undifferentiated audience as opposed to yeah. a podcast which is very niche. So that's as a result it goes towards this sort of you know, civically inspired by news. And the one thing that I concern, I worry about uh, from and from the text news world and also in the podcasting news world is that, yes, maybe that is what the audience has always wanted. But the fact that we had this old system, um, it produced as a almost as a you know a byproduct this civic good of of right. original reporting that is shared shared to some audience of some size that leads to you know more informed democracy and all the other things that we like to feel very important about and I, I look at podcasts I, I'm like you you can whether I'm listening to public radio or whether I'm listening to podcasts not produced by public radio is driven entirely by whether I'm in my car. Or I'm walking somewhere. Those are that's that's entirely it. If it's if I'm in my car, I've got WBUR on or, or maybe WGBH. Um, <laughs> the, <laughs> yeah. Um, if I'm walking, you know, I was I took, walked my son out this morning about six thirty for an hour or so, and uh, and I was just listening to podcasts the whole time. But in that space, news as it's traditionally been defined, kind of doesn't exist. Yeah. And I don't think that that necessarily needs to be the way that it is. Um, and I, I think that I think that something like NPR One, which is the the sort of Pandora of public radio, um, that's going to play a really big role in the ecosystem going forward. Where people will make a consumers will make a choice between do I want to do I want to sit down to a program or do I do I want to just sort of tap something and get sort of thrown into a a real time or close to real time stream that's going to tell me what's news right now? You know, um, and I think that those two things will will coexist. Um, but I think you raise a, a you know a very profound broader point, and this is you know which is that is choice a good thing? Like, do we make the right choices as consumers when we're given a choice? 
And and it's funny because like every any other sort of consumer or service industry would just laugh at us for even asking that question. Of course, you know they would just say, "Of you know, no, you give the people what they want." Um, but you know, journalism institutions are not just businesses; they're civic institutions, and they have to think about what they're doing for the greater good. And you know, and we see the ways in which. Um, Audience choice is really sort of injuring our society. Um, you know, the 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 siloing of of news and in particular political news is really injuring our society. You know, in ways that I think are just you know just manifestly true at this point. And people are just we're operating off of completely different understandings of facts and 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 and. And what what and what are the big issues of our time? I mean, and that's really injurious to our society. Um, and likewise, you know, with with you know with on demand radio, it's like I, I it, it is the thing that I'm picking because I can pick necessarily the thing that is going to be best for me, or even the thing that I'm going to like the most. You know, like the the, the 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 maybe the instructive example is from the restaurant industry, right? Like, if you can, if if I if I go to a restaurant where I'm going to order a dish and a chef is going to compose a plate for me and deliver it to me, there's going to be a green vegetable on there. I'm going to eat it. I'm probably going to like it, and I'm certainly going to feel better for having eaten it. But if I go to a buffet. Like how often do I get the green vegetable on the buffet? (laughs) I don't. Like I get the – I get like starch, meat, starch, meat, jello. And and I don't feel good after having eaten that, you know? And and so to me it's it's, it's a really tough thing and and I kind of feel like – I kind of feel like media consumers – maybe it's already happening, but I think that there's going to be a moment where sort of more enlightened media consumers are going to start wanting more curated products again, are going to start actually rejecting choice. Um, and, and maybe that's already happening in some places. It's not really happening in, 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 in my world, in public radio. And in fact, you know, going back to NPR One, you know, one of the things about NPR One is that, yeah, it's a curated stream of stories and stuff, but it allows you to skip – and um, so, you know, and I had a conversation on my show with Sarah Saracen, who runs NPR One, that people can listen to. And they, you know, th- that skip function is yielding NPR this tremendous wealth of data that they've never seen for the first, you know, they've never seen. And they're getting it for the first time, which is, you know, not just how many people are listening and how long are they listening, but when do they want to tune out of a story? You know, when do they choose to hit that skip button? And they're finding that, you know, uh, stories that don't begin with incredibly snappy leads, people just skip. Uh, They're finding that people who – stories that begin with sort of self-referential leads, like we here at NPR have been reporting all summer about education and we want to talk about X now. People tend to skip that stuff. They don't care about you and what you've been doing. They want to know what the story is right away. And the way that I, you know, NPR I think has been interpreting that data is, well, okay, this is what the audience wants. We need to – structure our stories and our leads this way. But at the same time, though, I'm not, I'm not sure that what the immediate self wants is necessarily what the, the bigger self wants, right? Like, you know, I might skip a story because it sounds boring to me at first, but often those end up being the most rewarding stories because they sort of introduce concepts or ideas or news or things that I had never heard of or thought of or even thought was going to be interesting. And in fact, that's one of the things that people will say they love the most about public radio, which is that 
you know, a show like All Things Considered, yeah, it's going to give you the news of the day, but it's also going to give you these stories that are completely out of left field that you, you had no idea you were going to be interested in, um, but because you had to, you had to consume them passively, um, you listened to them and you were enriched by them. Your world, your understanding of the world um, was enriched by them, and. So, so like, I'm not even sure that, you know, consumers are getting the experience that they want by skipping. It's just that skipping allows their little brain to be in charge instead of their big brain. Mm-hmm. I don't know how the, the industry, I don't know how we, you know, I don't know what we do about that. Yeah. And I, I think the, the, the broader point is that it's not just a competition between, you know, a, a, a quote, boring uh, morning edition story or all things considered story that may not be structured in such a way that, you know, the, the listener is, is engaged from second one versus, you know, a driveway moment. It's, it's those two things versus WTF and versus comedy podcasts and versus, you know, long, you know, movie review podcasts and a whole host of content types that are, that it's where you're not sort of debating between two kinds of, of journalism or two flavors of journalism. It's, it's something else entirely. Yes. And I, I look at my podcast app and, you know, I've got like a, a hundred different podcasts in there and how, how many of them are, are sort of of a, what we might say the, the, the broader public radio aesthetic, you know, maybe, maybe a quarter of them. Um, how many of them are actually like, you know, hard news? I mean, none of them, those, those sort of don't, don't really exist in a podcast native form for the most part, but you know, it's so much easier to just check out and in the same way that as if you were in, in talking about newspapers 10 years ago, you know, it, it was so comforting to view your competitive set as the newspaper in the next town over, or right. maybe you're competing with the New York times, or maybe you're competing with USA today or the journal as um, opposed to every other text in the right. universe, as opposed to competing with Facebook and, you know, yeah. every, you know, all their friends, you know, weddings and, and baby pictures and, and everything else. Right. The, the other thing I want to ask you about was um, I, I was listening uh, a while back to uh, episode 26 of the pub, the, which was uh, the uh, business of podcasting panel that you did at uh, PMDMC. Oh yeah. And one of the things that struck me in, uh, in that was, you know, it's, it's an hour long or so, like 50 minutes into it. After you're having a discussion about all the possibilities of, of the, of a pod, the podcasting business, um, you, the question turns to, what about on at local stations? Are there any local, local oriented, civically oriented podcasts being produced out of local stations that are meaningful, meaningfully monetized? And you said you, you weren't aware of any. Uh, the audience sort of said, you know, they shrug their collective shoulders yeah. in that. And and as someone who, you know, uh, thinks a lot about the the news end of this, you know, as newspapers have gone through their struggles, one of the sort of hopeful things of the last decade or so has been public radios. Uh, you know, halting, not 100% uh, confident, but transition into, you know, producing more original news content. And, yeah, yeah. you know, as opposed to wonderful outlets like Vox and Vice and BuzzFeed and the rest that are all, you know, national or global yes. in focus. Yeah, it's Public been one of the only growth centers of, of local journalism, and it is incredibly endangered. Yeah. And I just don't know, I mean, the... The, the sort of hacked together uh, business model that supports local public radio stations, the mixture of, you know, CPB funding and the local corporations and local local listeners and, and, and all the rest. I have a hard time seeing how that transitions into an on-demand world. And I, I guess I'm just kind of unaware of, you know, successful local news podcasts or even right. – I don't even know if I can – you could maybe take off the word successful. <laughs> Is there any reason for – 
for, are, have you seen anything there that is interesting or, or gives you optimism in that no, space? No, no. This is where I am. This is where I am most dire in my predictions. I'm very, very nervous about this. I mean, it's not even. It's not even like that. It's it's not even that the model doesn't work in on demand. It's that on demand threatens the model um, because you know even a even a place like WBUR, which I you know I I love I loved my time there. I I still you know we still talk about working together in various ways, and um, you know I think that they're they're just the model of how to do a public radio station right. Um, you know it's still the case that what they are doing in terms of their local programming is in effect subsidized by the fact that, um, you know, lots of people, the only way that they can get the national content, the only way they want to get the national content from NPR is through a terrestrial radio station, right? It's, it's the incredible, the incredible listenership that all things considered in morning edition, um, you know, drive that subsidizes everything else that goes on at that station and as you know, and as much as you know, as much as people like Bob Oaks, who is the local Morning Edition host sure. at WBUR, um, you know, is is he the one that they're tuning in for? I don't think so. I think they're just tuning in because they want their NPR. You know, and I think they like the fact that they get a, a, a really healthy amount of quality local content um, interwoven in there. But I'm not sure that that's the thing that really der- drives their decision making. And as people are increasingly able to get what they want directly from the source, you know, it, it's ultimately it's a middleman monopoly that has enabled all the good work at places like WBUR, and that is evaporating. And I do not know what happens next. I really, really don't. Now, I, I, I think that so, so. I think that like most, I think that most public radio stations in the country, the ones that are really functioning just as repeaters of NPR and maybe doing a little bit of kind of crappy local content, which is unfortunately I probably just described most public radio stations. Um, you know, they're, they're they're not long for this world, and I have I've 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 given up on trying to put forward a timeline because radio has already proven to ha- you know be. Uh, much longer lived than I thought it would be. Um, but those things are, you know, they're going to die eventually. Places like WBUR and KQED and WNYC, um, you know, wonderful public radio stations with really robust local programming operations, I think they will continue for a long time as institutions, but they will be profoundly changed. And I think that they will be much smaller in many ways. And I don't necessarily think that's a bad thing. I mean, I, th- I think of like all of the people at WBUR whose jobs are essentially about managing the repeating of NPR programming locally in, in greater Boston. Mm-hmm. Like I, I don't, I'm not, I mean, I love those people and I'm going to be really sad to see them lose their jobs on a personal level, but I don't really think that what they do is important, you know, in, in, in the, in the scheme of things, I'm not going to be sad to see those roles evaporate. Um, you know, what's, what remains to be seen is what are the sort of funding and, and content delivery models um, that will support robust local programming and what will that programming look like? Now, I do think that like, you know, one of the few quality examples I've seen in recent years of a, of a local or local ish, um, you know, podcast from a public radio station was David Boeri's um, David Bowery and I think Kevin Cullen from the globe mm-hmm. did a, um, did a, a short, a short run series of podcasts from the Whitey Bulger trial. And I mean, I would listen to those two guys just talk about anything, you right. know, like, um, but getting to hear them talk about Whitey, I mean, oh my God. I mean, it was 
freaking phenomenal stuff. So I, I and you know, and there's another example that I I'll point to, which is a, a podcast, and I'm, the name is saving me right now, but it's uh, West Virginia Public Broadcasting has this show that's about sort of Appalachian music and culture, and, and that's where I see the most potential right now is basically podcasts that are of particular interest to a local audience, but also can have some interest. Uh, to a global audience, either, you know, in the case of West Virginia, they're sort of aiming it at the sort of Appalachian diaspora, all the people who leave but still have that culture in their bones. Um, or in case of Whitey Trial, I mean, there's just so many people. It's not just Boston that was interested in the Whitey Trial. So I see some potential there. Um, I think if NPR One can really take off, um, I, I see that as a way to save the local spot news gathering operations at public radio stations um, because, you know, NPR One allows stations to upload their own, their own like newscasts, you know, the short form, the 40-second spots, that kind of stuff, plus their feature pieces, their three- to four-minute stuff. They can upload all that stuff into NPR One, and then if you open up the NPR One app, um, wherever you are, it's going to connect you to a station, and it's going to work in local content from that station into your stream. And I think that, you know, maybe a, a way that it could work is that, you know, stations could essentially – stop being radio stations and just basically become little content production houses for creating local content that gets thrown into NPR one. That's a possible way that it could survive. But, you know, both of these things are kind of, you know, really kind of pie in the sky at this point. And yeah. I'm very, very worried. I don't know what's going to happen, but I'm scared for, I'm scared for my friends. You know? And part, part of the, the challenge in, in this scenario is that you're, it's sort of a long-term process of trading away your really good customers for a bunch of kind of crappy customers. Yeah. I mean, we were talking earlier about, you know, no one cares if there's an Oxford, if you use the Oxford common in a newspaper and my, a little voice when my brain, well, some people care. And those people are probably your most loyal subscribers who are the ones who are most likely to write a letter to the editor and call and complain. The same way that no one cares if you run this one particular, you know, your your least popular comic strip. Well, actually, there's there's probably hundreds of people who really do care, and they might have a protest outside your office, right? So, in the same way that the the public the, the local station public radio model has been built around having a bunch of you know from a from a raw business point of view, really bad customers, people who just listen to the radio and and don't get meaningfully don't contribute to it financially in any way, and this set of uh, you know, large donors, the, your sustainers, the large corporations, yeah. the foundations who provide the the bulk of the the funding, and as you go this transition, you know, in the model that you outline, like why would a local donor who's currently giving a lot of money to WBUR or any station that we could we could sub in there, why would that person be as excited about and have as strong of an identification if it's WBUR just becomes this one thing that cycles into this random stream, this playlist every so right. often. The the it's the same thing with with newspapers. If you go chasing page views online, you're you you can do that, and there are plenty of ways to do that. But you risk pissing off the people who might actually you know contribute by signing up for your paywall or or, yeah. or whatever. Yeah, it, it's absolutely true, and and it's certainly been the case that um, you know public radio is public radio stations, which do the bulk of the fundraising. That's something that people don't understand is that NPR actually does not raise money directly from 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 listeners. They do some major donor stuff and they do underwriting corporate stuff, but they do not they do not solicit memberships. That's up to the stations, and the stations pass that money on to NPR in, ter- in the in the form of uh, membership fees and uh, 
and uh, and uh, show subscription fees. Um, public radio economy is one in which, like, yeah, the 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 noisy the noisy person really wields an enormous amount of power and i think much too much power like really to it's been to the detriment of the form that someone who is a major giver you know can be pissed off about a piece um can call the station their call will be answered by someone important and what that that person's annoying bullshit i'm sorry can i swear on your that's fine Okay, that person's annoying bullshit complaint, um, you know, will 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 get way more attention than it should, and I've seen that happen over and over and over again, and I think it has been really to the detriment of the product. Um, you know, people people are there's so much anxiety out there in the world around the in, increasing role of corporate money, advertising, or underwriting money in in public media. And I just think that that's so misplaced because, you know, I've been working in this business for a while now and it's like I've never, ever seen an underwriter or an advertiser interfere with coverage in any way. It does not happen. It's so unbelievably contrary to the organizational culture. It just – if anyone suggested we should not do something to avoid pissing off an advertiser or an underwriter, like they would just be laughed out of the meeting. It does not happen, whereas I've seen over and over and over again – um, you know, donors interfere with coverage. Um, license holders interfere with coverage or programming. You know, do, do you really? Th- you know, WBUR, like owned by Boston University. Um, do you really think that WBUR wants to do what they've done for years, which is they air church Sunday morning <laughs> from from the BU Chapel? Like that is that is that is prime weekend listening time, and it is it is death. On you know, they are consigned to oblivion. It is, uh, it is the Sunday time mornings. that I'm most likely to switch from WBUR to its rival station, WGBH, because uh, it's just the one where I'm like, all right, I'm, I'm running errands on Sunday morning. Exactly. I'm really not that into – I don't want to go to church right now. Right. And there's a show – there's also a show. I don't know if they still do it, but they did it while I was there called Boston University World of Ideas. World of Ideas. It's basically just like a PR show for, for BU and, and they tuck that away you know, at night on the weekend um, in a place where it, it's pretty you – know, can't really hurt anyone. But you know, the, you know, those are pretty benign examples of like the license holder interfering with the, the programming. Um, they're actually kind of – in the case of church, it's just kind of adorable actually. <laughs> you know, But like I've seen much, you know, much less benign things, like really kind of crappy and insidious things um you know so uh, getting back to the point which is to say that like you know i i I don't like how you know you in in the public media economy as it's been thus far like you have these people who are your sort of core supporters or core listeners who have been able to wield way too much influence and 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 the place where you can see that most clearly is in the persistence of classical music formats at public radio stations across the country um you know you don't have it in boston anymore because you got two uh, all news stations competing against each other but still like especially out in sort of rural America, like, you know, you have tons and tons and tons of public radio stations that are mixed format. They do news at drive time and they do classical music. And and the classical music is just, it's ratings, death, you know, um, no, no, it's, nobody listens, nobody likes it. I don't think it serves a very, you know, and I have lots of friends who are wonderful classical music announcers and I love them and I think they do their work very well and very honorably, but I'm just not convinced that it serves a really important uh, social good, you know, um, but w- why does it w- why does it persist? Because you have these sort of silvery haired, deep pocketed donors who keep it going, and that's awful, you know. So I'm kind of thrilled by any disruption to the business model that disrupts that that hold, you know, and um, 
And, you know, fact of the matter is, is that um, advertisers are right now showing great interest in podcasting. And I think that that's really awesome. Um, I've not seen advertising advertisers interfere with the editorial in podcasting in a way anywhere that has concerned me. Um, So I'm really excited about that. I'm also excited that, you know, the sort of listener supported models for on demand audio content have, have generally been built around really small donations Kickstarter type stuff, Patreon, um, you know, lots and lots of small donors is really the way to go. It's the way to avoid the kind of crappy influence, um, you know. So, so I, I'm excited about all of that, and I, I see there's you know there's great potential there. So I'm, okay. I'm not all I'm, I'm sanguine about some things. <laughs> good, good. Last thing I want to ask you, um, I'm going to put you on the spot. You, uh, you know, as as an outside observer, you you have lots of strong opinions about about. Uh, about where where things should go. Uh, if so, two questions. If you were suddenly appointed uh, the new Jarl Mohn, if you were the new CEO of NPR, what are two or three things that you would do differently than than are currently being done? And the second question is same thing. And you've just been named the head of a local public radio station. <laughs> what are the okay. things? What are the actionable things that you know you think should be done? Okay, so if I were Yarl Mon, if I were the new NPR CEO, um, I would need I would, the first thing I would do is I would foment some kind of strategy that would allow me to change the board composition of NPR. Uh, NPR has a, a majority of the seats on the NPR board are held by representatives from member stations. So in effect, the stations own and control NPR, um, which is why NPR can't just sort of you know convert overnight to an on-demand content creation house, which it would be. You know, extremely successful at um, it, it. Ultimately, serves radio stations, and in fact, it's actually quite amazing to me that the stations and the board have allowed NPR to spend as much money and time and effort on on-demand content as as it has, because that effort has, at the very least, not helped the stations and possibly even hurt the stations by pulling away some listeners. So, um, you need to change the board composition in order to make any meaningful changes to NPR. Um, I kind of think that the only way that that's going to happen. Is for there to be a, is to let a crisis happen, like you know, because the thing is, is that the um, the board composition as it is now is the result of an earlier crisis from uh, 1983, I think. So check me on that. Uh, but uh, basically, NPR had a major fiscal crisis, and a group of large stations, including WBUR, banded together and bailed NPR out, gave them a bunch of money, and in exchange, the board composition was changed, and stations basically took control of NPR. Um, I, I think that that process. The only way I can see stations breaking their hold, the station hold on NPR being broken, is for a, a crisis to happen in reverse, and that could happen. You know, where where lots and lots of stations are getting poorer and poorer and poorer, their radio audiences are dipping, and eventually they just can't afford their membership dues um, and their programming fees to NPR anymore. Um, And then you basically exploit that crisis and you turn around and you say, okay, I understand that you're in this situation. Here, give us our freedom. Um, You know, let, let go of your control of us. Let's change the board. And in exchange, we're going to uh, we're going to end the membership fees. We'll, we'll, uh, maybe we'll, we'll offer all of the radio content under a Creative Commons license, which is something I kind of think public media should be doing anyway and can't for various practical reasons. But I think just as a matter of ethics and mission really should be. Hmm. You know, We're just going to offer all this programming, and if you want to air it, that's fine. If anybody else wants to air it, that's fine. Um, you'll get it all for free now. In exchange, give us our freedom. So the first thing you have to do is sort of engineer or allow that crisis to happen and then exploit it. Then – 
what you do is um, you dramatically redirect uh, your your focus away from terrestrial radio. You don't abandon it because terrestrial radio is going to be really, really important, maybe even in perpetuity, but certainly for a really, really long time. It's going to continue to be a place where there's lots of people listening and lots of you know, public service to be done and lots of money to be made. So you, don't, you do not abandon terrestrial radio. But frankly, what I would do is I would take um, – I would take – Morning Edition and All Things Considered, which are both two-hour programs, they're at their core. It's two hours of new content that then is recycled. It's refed um, with sort of little updates sprinkled in as necessary. Mm -hmm. But at core, they're two-hour programs. First step is I would take them both to hour-long programs. Um, You know what we're seeing in the the listening audience in the listening data is that. you know, our public radio's audience, total audience, like people in the audience is holding relatively steady. It's dipping a little bit, but like uh, this figure that we look at called QM is holding relatively steady. There's still – if you were a public radio listener 10 years ago, you probably are still a public radio listener now. Right. What's really dropping is this other figure, AQH, which stands for average quarter hour. It tells you basically how long people are listening and people are not listening nearly as long as they used to. And I think it's because they just have so many other options and they might listen to NP- – they might do what you do, Josh, like listen to NPR a little bit in the car, but then they switch to a podcast in a different listening context. So anyway, so um, what that tells you is is that like there's no, there's no value. You're not serving anyone by producing two hours of continuously new content every morning, you know, because no one's listening. I mean like there's a few people who are listening to the two hours, but screw them. You can't be – you can't allow yourself to be – um, lorded over by your super heavy users, you know? Hmm. Um, so take it, just take it to one hour, just take it to one hour. Most people are listening for 20 minutes at a time anyway, you know? And I think you can, I think a station like WBUR can still air four or five hours of morning edition every morning. It just recycles every hour. No people dip in, they dip out. The odds of them hearing the same story twice are, are low and getting lower. So that's the first thing I do, and I wouldn't fire any of those people. I would simply redirect those people to creating on-demand content, and then I would just gradually continue that process if I were Yalamon. I would whittle away at the radio product and basically create Find, find what is the, what is the viable rump. <laughs> what's the, what's the least amount of terrestrial radio content that I can make every day that is still going to serve the audience? Um, and you know, find that spot through experimentation and all of your other efforts. Um, go to uh, go to your on-demand content. So that's what I would do if I were NPR. If I were to put it in charge of a station, um, it's it's a it's a tougher thing. Um, it also depends a lot on whether you're in charge of you know WGBH or you know KRVS yes. in my my local radio station Lafayette, Louisiana. Right. Yes. Well. Yeah. No. Yes. Okay. Absolutely true. So so let's say that I'm I'm going to a station that is not going to be you know WBUR could at the very least be just a viable national program production house and nothing else. You know. Um, so even if you took away everything that's – all the local content and everything that's, that's based on the, the monopoly of the NPR distribution in Boston or the oligopoly with <laughs> WGBH in the mix, um, WBUR could do that. So that's a whole different thing. You're basically just in charge of a media company there. But if you're in charge of, a, of, a, of, a, of your normal public radio station that mostly just rebroadcasts national content and does a little bit of your own sprinkled in that isn't a huge draw um, – I, you know, the thing about radio listenership is that, like, overall radio listenership is still incredibly robust. And you'll see 
you know, every now and then Pew or somebody else will do a study finding that like radio is actually the most consumed medium of anything in the country or you know, some other metric, you know, and it's not it's not dipping at all. Everyone is still listening to radio. And then like every one of these like public media, you know, social uh, like closed Facebook groups that I'm in, all of the old people in those groups will post those articles and be like, ha ha, you know. Uh, you silly kids. Um, radio is, is still the thing. And, and in fact, Jarl Mohn, that's at NPR. That's like one of his favorite talking points is the how robust radio listenership remains. Right. Um, but the thing it's is, co- is... It's that, like a cockroach, right? Isn't that the metaphor he's used? Yeah, that, that's you know? the metaphor. And it's a great yeah. metaphor, which is like terrestrial radio is, is, is the cockroach of the media world. After everything else is dead, it will still be alive. And I think he's probably right about that. But alive in what form and alive to whom, okay? The thing is, is that it's like, yeah, radio listenership overall is holding pretty strong. It's dipping a lot in public radio's historical core demo, which is upscale people, educated people, um, overwhelmingly white people, um, people with money and education. That's who public radio has historically served, and that has its own problems. Um, And those people are abandoning radio faster because they're the ones with with the connected car, right? Right. Um, they're the ones with the devices. They're the ones with the savvy um, to be, you know, and the time to be searching out podcasts and stuff like that. So radio is dying faster for public radio's core demo than it is for the general population. So if I'm running a radio station, what I would maybe experiment with, and this is probably really quixotic because from a business perspective, it would completely fail, but maybe there'd be a way to get some grant money and try this, which is basically like, stop serving those, those people on your radio service. No one says that that has to be your core demo. You know, it just has historically been your core demo. And maybe it shouldn't have been your core demo all along because, you know, rich people can support their own media. You know, maybe public media should be serving people who need serving. And, you know, and where radio listenership is really exploding is like new immigrant communities, um, you know, because it's so damn cheap and ubiquitous. Mm-hmm. And maybe what I would do is like completely, you know, and just completely wipe out my schedule and try to come up with a schedule that's going to serve, you know, maybe if I'm in a town with a really high Hispanic population, I'm just going to be – I'm going to be the the – the the really high quality um, Spanish and English speaking Latino um, radio source in my community because there's you know there's lots of there's especially in you know in Latino heavy communities I mean there's lots and lots of Spanish language media but a lot of it is kind of crappy um, a lot of it is just like soccer talk and uh, a lot of it is and it tends to be Spanish um, and and English speaking Latinos tend to feel a little bit left out. Um, so, you know, I would, maybe I'd say like, I'm going to be the radio station that does like really, really high quality civic oriented news and community programming, um, for English speaking Latinos. And in fact, KPCC and NPR station in Los, uh, Pasadena serving Los Angeles is dipping their toes into doing exactly that. And, they, and it's been subsidized by this massive grant that they got from the CPB. Um, and they've had tremendous success. They've doubled their Latino audience over the last five years, I think they said, mm-hmm. um, Um, and you know, so I think that's what I might try. I might just try abandoning public radio's core demo and completely changing what I do with my radio audience. And I thought, and maybe if I have like, you know, local productions that do have some, um, 
affinity with the core public radio demo, that's awesome. Move them online exclusively because that's where that demo is going to want to get them anyway. Well, I hope that you would enjoy your 30 seconds running a local public yeah, radio station. <laughs> yeah, exactly. I look forward to your first meeting where you go in and propose that and then uh, your next meeting with HR as you're being escorted out of the building. But, you know, there's, there's, there are stations because things, things just aren't that desperate yet, but they're going to get desperate. And there are some stations in the system where you're starting to see people doing radical experimentation. Like there's a station in California, I, the, the, the call letters are blanking on me, but it's, you know, some, some little public TV station that never really amounted to much. And they've got a new person in charge there who basically laid off the entire television staff and said, we are now going to create on-demand video exclusively. Like we're, we're going to make YouTube videos, you know, and we're going to see if that works. Hmm. And we're going to use, you know, what's left of the, you know, of the money and the prestige and the, you know, political support of this legacy institution that we have to do something completely different from what the institution was, was created to do. And most of those things are going to fail. But I think as, as things get more and more desperate, you're going to see more and more crazy ideas getting tried, and one or two of them might stick, and I can't wait to see. And I'm sure that we'll be able to read about them and listen to them on the pub. Damn right. Well plugged, sir. And <laughs> well, I'll I, let I will, you take off your I'll, academic I'll write about cowl. them for Neiman Lab. I promise to. <laughs> I'll let you take off your, your academic gown and uh, uh, <laughs> just say uh, thanks for talking with me. I really appreciate it. Oh, it's my pleasure. You do tremendous work, Josh. Um, you know, we just we, – we couldn't, couldn't – couldn't have a professional community without Neiman Lab. Well, now you're going to make me edit that out. <laughs> <laughs> Darn, forgot to edit that out. That's episode 13 of Press Publish. I hope you enjoyed it. My thanks to Adam for the conversation. You can find the pub at current.org. If you like this podcast, you'll probably like that one. And Adam's on Twitter at Aragusia. If you like our show, I hope you'll subscribe. You can find the link to our feed at presspublish.org or just subscribe in iTunes. And if you like the show, a positive review in iTunes helps us out a lot. The Neiman Journalism Lab is a project of the Neiman Foundation for Journalism at Harvard University, home of the Neiman Fellowships, Neiman Reports Magazine, Neiman Storyboard, and much, much more. Find us at neiman.harvard.edu. That's N-I-E-M-A-N, not like Neiman Marcus. This episode was recorded at Walter Lippmann House, Walter Lippmann, who said, Between ourselves and our real natures, we interpose that wax figure of idealizations and selections, which we call our character. Our theme music is Missing You by Trash 80. Check back next week for another episode of Press Publish, but until then, always remember, disrupt yourself before somebody else disrupts you.